Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the first half hour is Eddie Gabor. He is the co-owner at Key Advisors Group, uh, based in Lewis, Delaware. Uh, they're an independent fund representative and help people with their investments. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thank you for having me. Let's just start with your background a little bit and uh, what your firm does. Yeah, so we are a full-service wealth advisory firm. Uh, we do full-service financial planning for our clients. Uh, we do, it's on a fee basis that we do, and we do holistic planning. So we take a look at the client's entire picture when we're making recommendations, and uh, a lot of times we work hand-to-hand with the other professionals. We believe in the team approach, so we work with their CPAs, their attorneys, and we're trying to design their full plan for them. Uh, and then the job is really to stay in close contact with our clients and make sure that we're meeting with them every three to six months. Okay, and so what a typical kind of clients you have? They uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, retirees, what kind of clients do you typically serve? Uh, majority of our clients are retired or they're approaching retirement. So they take a little bit more of a conservative approach to investing than many inve- uh, investors do simply because they've already accumulated the majority of the net worth they're going to accumulate for their lifetime. So it's a matter of sharing some strategies to generate income. You know, Of course, they want some moderate growth, but also looking for ways to preserve capital and try to limit volatility as much as humanly possible in this type of environment. In a very low interest rate environment which you're in, uh, what do you recommend for retirees who want income but don't want to take a lot of risk? Well, you know, if you don't want to take a lot of risk and you want income, I'll be very honest with you, there's not a lot of options. You know, that's been one of the biggest challenges over the last several years as far as income is concerned. So individual investors have actually been taking more risk than they normally would only because of the interest rate cycle environment. So you see many times of dividend-style portfolios of individual stock. You would see some preferred stock in a portfolio, as well as some investment-grade bonds to try to generate as much yield as you possibly can. But clearly understanding if you have a dividend portfolio of, that mainly consists of stock, yes, you may be getting a higher income than you would in just a regular traditional fixed account, but you're going to take carry on more risk than what you're accustomed to. And we're hoping that the interest rate cycle is going to actually start to swing in the other direction that will provide some opportunities for investors that they haven't seen in quite a long time. So what are you expecting in the interest rate cycle? The Federal Reserve has raised rates last December. They just did it a week ago. Uh, are you expecting many more Federal Reserve uh, interest rate increases, and how will that affect the bond market? You know, I think that we should start to expect a uh, consistent upward trend in the interest rate market environment. Uh, bonds have had an unbelievable run for a long time. We haven't had a rising interest rate market environment in over 30 years and so now I think we're heading into a cycle, especially if we get some uh, tax reform that we believe will help spur some growth in the economy. And we're starting to see some wage growth now and some signs of some growth. So if that stays true, then we can continue to foresee interest rate hikes for the foreseeable future. And we hope to see that because I think higher interest rates, uh, for selfishly for my clients, will benefit them. So that's on the short end or the long end or both? Both. So I think the short end for sure. The long end can be a little bit more challenging only because, keep in mind, when you look at the interest rates around the globe, our 10-year bond, although as low as it is, is still higher than many countries. 
So you're getting demand from overseas that is keeping our 10-year Treasury rates low. And I, I see that as trend is continuing to happen. So I don't think we're going to see, you know, a 4% yield on the 10-year overnight by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's going to be a slow and steady rise up. But keep in mind that demand from overseas is going to keep the longer rate down. So if both short-term and long-term rates are going to be rising over time, how does that affect what you're doing on the fixed income side of your portfolio, bonds and bond surrogates, things like REITs and utilities and uh, interest rate-sensitive stocks? So interest rate sensitive stocks, you have to be, so for example, we'll start on the bond side. So on the bond side, I think what we have done is by lowering the duration of the bond. So instead of buying really long-term bonds, staying more short-term, generally will provide a buffer for volatility on interest rate, on interest rate spikes. So the longer the term of the bond, the higher the volatility is when you have interest rate moves. So by staying short-term, uh, on the bond side, you are limiting that. On the security side, on the stocks and preferred stocks and utilities, I mean, there's going to be a point in time when interest rates get higher, those stocks become less attractive because people buy them for the yield. So if you have a stock that's yielding 3 or 4% and the 10-year gets close to that, you'll probably see those types of equity side of the portfolio struggle because all of a sudden they become less attractive to an investor because they can get the same yield in something that may be a little bit safer. So as where interest rate market is rising, uh, you've got to make sure you don't have your entire portfolio in interest rate sensitive uh, investments because, again, if we're in a rising interest rate market environment, you're going to have some challenges there. As the reason interest rates are going to be rising and the, what the reason the Fed's going to raise rates is you say hi, see higher economic growth coming forward? Yes, I do believe that is going to be the main culprit behind them raising rates. And now, is the reason for that economic growth uh, tax cuts and infrastructure and the things that President Trump is talking about doing? I do believe that. I, uh, I believe that if we see that, I mean, we've had some of the, you know, top CEOs uh, who, you know, didn't necessarily support the current administration during the election that have all come out and really supported the tax reform. I think that's something that there is uh, some agreement on both sides there, which is encouraging because our tax rate is pretty high when you look around the globe. And so I think it's, you know, when we're in an economy like we're in now, uh, where we're not in a recession, and you have an opportunity to make this big of a change on the tax side, it, it could be a tremendous, you know, for lack of a better word, stimulus to an economy that take us to, you know, growth rates that are higher than where we are now. The GDP has not been growing that much. So the hope is that reform will filter back into the economy and get us some growth that will justify the Fed raising rates. Now, if it doesn't happen... The form, if the tax reform does not happen, you could be in a situation where the Fed has to lower rates because the market has been growing in anticipation of reform. If that reform doesn't happen, we fully expect to see a pretty healthy drop back down. Because there's a lot of expectations built in, you're saying. Correct. That's the, ner- that's the thing that should make investors somewhat nervous is their inch- as though, although the market has been fun to watch going up since the election – it's all based off of speculation that this reform is going to happen. If it doesn't happen, then you're going to see it, in my opinion, 
you could see it go right back to where it started from. So let's specifically talk about tax reform. What do you think there's going to be a lot of proposals thrown out there? What do you think in the end will be enacted both on the corporate side and the individual side? So, <clears throat> excuse me, on the corporate side, I mean, our hope is that we will see, find some middle ground at about 20%. And we hope that also filters down to, in the tax reform, one of the things on the table is, you know, when you hear tax reform, a lot of people will talk about these multi-million dollar companies, you know, or billion dollar companies like the apples of the world. Uh, but what's uh, many times not discussed is the effect, the positive effect it can have on the small business owner. You know, so I've got a client who owns a landscaping company. And if his tax rate drops to 20% on his S-corporation, where those pass-through entities, where he's currently paying both federal and state income tax at a much higher rate than 20%, if we're able to get the small business owner's tax rate down to those same levels, I mean, it's just a tremendous amount of relief for business owners that will go back into reinvesting in their business, buying new equipment, hiring new staff. And again, the goal and hope would be is that you'll continue to see wage growth grow from there, and then it's a win-win. That, so, that's always the question is if you get a tax cut for businesses and for higher income individuals, Will they reinvest it, or will they just sit on the money, or you know, put it in stocks or something, but not really grow their businesses? This is the, it's it's um, people call it trickle down economics, I guess you'd say. So, is there evidence that in fact, if they got a big windfall from a tax cut, they would reinvest it? You know, I can't sit here and say I have evidence other than the fact of who I talk to. You know, I've got uh, a lot of my clients, as I said, are retirees, but many of them own businesses in the past, and when you talk to everyday people and business owners. When business owners get an extra influx of revenue in their company, you know, sure, they may save some, some more of it for themselves, but many of them take a portion of that and reinvest it in their business. I mean, I think that's a pretty consistent message that I hear from small business owners uh, is, yes, they are going to keep some of it themselves, but they are definitely going to reinvest in their business uh, to take advantage of that. I mean, I think any business owner who's always trying to be the best at what they do are always going to be reinvesting dollars into their business. So that's on the uh, so, corporate side. You're talking about going from 35 to 20. How about on the individual side? What do you see happening there? You know, on the individual side, uh, uh, it's a tough call. I really don't know what they're going to end up coming up with there. I'm hoping that they simplify it and we go, instead of all the different brackets that we have now, that they simplify it down to three or four, because I think one thing is consistent uh, that you'd have agreement on if you're unbiased is the tax code is really complex and probably too complex and really what it needs to be. So you go down to three or four brackets, and in return for lowering rates and having fewer brackets, does that mean that certain deductions or credits will be limited or eliminated? I think they will. I'm sure there's some loopholes in there that could, that will be eliminated or reduced. Um, you know, and the hope is, again, we'll have to see it happen to see if it supports this theory. But the idea is, is by lowering the rate on the corporate and individual side, that you're not going to sacrifice revenue on the government side because you're going to have higher revenue to be able to tax at that lower rate. So it should be a net positive. If everyone is reinvesting a portion of that savings, like you said, if they just sit there and hoard on the cash, which I don't think they'll do, then you're not going to get the growth that we're hoping this will bring. Yeah. 
All right. So uh, on the individual, so are there some specific things you think might be limited as far as uh, credits or deductions if they lower the rates on the individual side? You know, I'm sure they may put a max on how much mortgage interest you can deduct for certain brackets. They may do that. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's been some debate on regards to the charitable giving side on how much, whether they're going to put any cap rates on that or make any changes to that. Uh, again, I think the in, I think the individual side on the tax reform is much more complicated than the corporate tax reform. I think yeah. the corporate tax reform is pretty cut and dry on what needs to be done, and I think there's going to be a lot of agreement there, which is why I hope when they go to pass this thing, they break it up into two different pieces. They do the corporate tax reform first, and then they'll tackle the individual tax reform. Because the individual tax reform, I believe, is a little bit more complex and too much area for debate there. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Eddie Gabor. Uh, he is a co-owner at Key Advisors Group based in Lewis, Delaware. Uh, his website to find out more about what he does is keyadvisorsgroupllc.com. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Eddie Gabor. He is a co-owner at the Key Advisors Group uh, based in Lewis, Delaware. Uh, their website is keyadvisorsgroupllc.com. Advisors with an O, by the way. Uh, welcome back to the show, Eddie. Thank you. So we talked about rising interest rates, uh, potential for corporate and individual tax return uh, reform. Uh, a lot of us talked about infrastructure spending. Uh, is, in fact, that going to happen, and what impact will that have on the economy? 
Well, again, I think the infrastructure spending bill, if it's going to go direct to shovel-ready type jobs, will be another fantastic boost and, again, for lack of a better word, stimulus to the economy. Uh, you couple that with tax reform, uh, and then generally speaking, you know, those are higher-paying jobs as well, too, to always remember. So, uh, again, if they're shovel-ready and you've got a trillion-dollar uh, reform going into the economy, that's, again, I don't know how that doesn't help, how anyone can argue that that would not help and spur economic growth. So are there some specific sectors, say all this happens, say the tax reform happens, uh, the infrastructure spending happens, the Federal Reserve raises interest rates and interest rates in general go up, what sectors would be benefiting that? You're saying the sectors that would be hurt would be interest-sensitive stocks and bonds. But what sectors would be helped by that scenario? I think what you would see really help, I think the financials for sure. You know, financials, now they've had a a fantastic run since the election. But if you look back over the last several years, they've been one of the laggers for sure. uh, Because in a rising interest rate market environment, the financial sector, uh, the banks, for example, uh, should do really, really well. I think you'll see your more large growth type of stocks do well also. Uh, because for the last several years in a depressed interest rate market environment, your more value-type dividend-paying stocks have, done, have been some of your best performers because, again, the yield was so much higher on those than what you could get the 10-year treasury. So investors looked at that as an, a very attractive place to park money, get income, and try to keep volatility as low as they possibly can. But I think you're going to start to see the pendulum swing as it has – here in the short term, where your more large growth sectors and your financial sectors will more than likely, in that type of environment, should outperform your more dividend-paying stocks. I'm not saying you abandon that in your portfolio by any means, because everyone should be diversified based off their risk tolerance, but I do believe that the banking financial sector will probably be one of the better performers. So growth versus value, it has been value over growth in the last few years, you're saying? Yes, it has. Uh, and specifically related to the infrastructure spending, uh, what kind of companies would be benefiting if, in fact, we spend a trillion dollars or so on improving the infrastructure? I mean, I think any company that's producing any of the materials that would be used for bridges, roads, I mean, it's, uh, it's going to be – I mean, it's a broad-based area there that's going to be beneficial. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you look at the real estate market and how many different areas that affects – when building starts to boom. Uh, it's the same thing on the infrastructure spending side. Uh, there's lots of areas that are going to benefit from it, and which is why, again, I, I do believe that if that happens and they are shovel-ready, that it should, do, it should help us quite a bit and allow this bull market to continue to run longer than most people ever thought it would. So are you specifically positioning your clients' portfolios to benefit from the infrastructure spend? Well, what we have done from a macro perspective, uh, from a global perspective, I should say, on our clients, and again, everything is client by client based on risk tolerance, is uh, reduce some bond exposure. We have increased on the equity side for clients uh, and on the income side, shortened the duration. So we've had some longer-term bonds and portfolios for a while, and money managers shifting to a more short-term duration strategy. Uh, but again, 
being very conscious of how much risk a client is willing and wants to take with their portfolio is the most important thing before you just run out and make a change. Because although we feel really good about where we are in the economic cycle and what the market could potentially do, we do not discount the fact that you can have a double-digit correction in any period of time sometime this year. That's just a normal thing to expect year in and year out as to see these types of short-term pullbacks that cause people's stomachs to turn. And if you're fully invested in equities at time, you don't have any ammunition to buy the dips. So the other big area that has a major change would be coming would be health care. Uh, what is your expectation of what's going to happen to replace Obamacare, and what will be the impact of that on the economy and, and specific stock sectors? You know, I think you can see some, some drug companies may have some challenges there. Um, again, until we know what the bill really is, it's hard to speculate on that. But I can tell you from a sector perspective, the healthcare with the aging demographic, there's always going to be a natural demand for health care, right? Uh, so that's something as an investor in that space you can feel comfortable with. There are going to be pockets within the healthcare space, though, like the drug companies that could be negatively impacted, uh, depending upon if they put caps on pricing that they do for drugs, uh, some of the rhetoric that could come back and forth. So really, until you truly know what's in that bill and what gets passed, it's too hard to speculate in regards to that. But I do think from a sector standpoint, as an investor, and the demographics that you can rest assured that there's going to be natural demand for health care no matter what the regulation is. Do you think, in fact, something will pass and there'll be a new replacement of Obamacare that'll be Trump care, whatever they're going to call it, will in fact happen? You know, I think it will, and I, the reason why I think it will is because I, they know they can't get to tax reform before they get that done. And so that, I believe, is going to be the biggest motivating factor because, let's face it, that's where they're getting a lot of pressure from everyone is, is get this corporate tax reform done. And they have publicly said they are not going to tackle that until the health care reform is tackled. So that is going to be a big motivation for them to get it done, and I do believe they will. So uh, this is the, the kind of outlook you have. What could go wrong with that environment, the outlook you have, if tax reform does not happen because it gets delayed by health care, if infrastructure does not happen and the stock market's had a big run-up here, what is the downside if, if these things don't actually come to pass? I think the downside is huge. I mean, I think you could see a double-digit drop, uh, and it's not going to wait. So let's just assume this. Let's say that the market wants to see tax reform done by August, and we enter the month of June, and it doesn't look like you know they haven't even had health care done yet. So that means the likelihood of tax reform being done is not going to happen by August. I think you will see the market sell off in a big way because it's going to be nervous. And the one thing the market does not like is uncertainty. And so they felt the market is reading as saying they felt certain after the election that the reform was going to happen. But if it gets the longer it gets delayed, the bigger the drop will be in the market. So. I don't think people should get too complacent in this environment because as soon as you do is when the next shoe drops and you usually have a big correction. And how do we stand internationally? Are you concerned about possible trade wars or do you think our trade deficit will go up, go down because of the Trump policies? You know, again, I think, you know, you, you've got certainly have geopolitical risks for sure, you know, um, and that is, to me, I think that's probably a bigger concern 
uh, versus us not getting tax reform done. I think overall geopolitical environment could become, you know, difficult and challenging at times because of the world that we're in today. You know, we're all tied together whether we like it or not. So if something happens really bad overseas uh, or perceived to be bad overseas, we're going to feel it here. You know, uh, look what happened with Brexit, right? We had a double-digit drop in three trading days. It bounced back, but the point I'm making is if something happens overseas, uh, good or bad, we do feel those ramifications because we are a global economy today. And how about the dollar, which has been quite strong? Everything you're talking about with rising interest rates and rising uh, economic growth, how would that affect the U.S. dollar compared to other major currencies? Well, I think our dollar will continue to be strong, uh, and you know, which could you want to talk about sectors could help the small cap space, you know, because small cap companies many times don't have currency risk. So if the dollar gets too strong, it's definitely going to hurt multinational companies for sure uh, because they'll take a little bit of an earnings hit because of the dollar. But if it gets too strong, then maybe you look to, again, position a portfolio and maybe different types of, of businesses that don't have that currency risk. But so that's that's what you're looking for. You think the dollar is strong, going to get stronger, and you you not do multinationals as much as more domestically oriented companies. Correct. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So for the retirees you have, you're managing money for. How would you describe their mood? Are they optimistic? They're happy the stock market's up so much. Are they cautious about what's coming? What is their their kind of sentiment right now? I would say they're cautiously optimistic. Okay. Anytime you see the market go up the way it has in a short period of time, I think it's natural for anyone that's invested over a long period of time to feel a little bit uneasy that, okay, it's not going to go straight up. We know we're going to have some type of volatility. And, you know, our clients are cautiously optimistic. They are definitely having conversations about tax reform and nervous on the fact of whether or not it's going to get done or not, because I think they realize that that's what's being priced into the market. And not to keep repeating myself, but if that doesn't happen, it changes everything we're talking about here today. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and so if all this happens, uh, how quickly will that kick in? I mean, the tax reform, the infrastructure, is it 2018, or do you start seeing some of the effects this year? When does it actually happen? Well, I mean, indirectly, kick in? yeah. I think, well, our hope is, is that it happens this year for sure and goes retroactive. But... If it gets passed, I think you're going to start to see, you know, the benefits right away. I mean, indirectly, we're seeing it now, right? Look at the average person's, you know, no matter what they what they do for a living, a lot of people today depend on a 401k, right, as a savings vehicle for them to be able to retire, whether they make three thirty thousand dollars a year or or three hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, everyone has been that's in 401ks that has some equity exposure has benefited indirectly by this tax reform that's on the table because that's why the markets run up and it's helped their 401k values and their confidence. So it can hurt them as well too if it doesn't happen, and it will. I see. Very good. Well, terrific. Uh, my uh, guest this half hour has been Eddie Gabor. Uh, he is a wealth advisor uh, at Key Advisors Group based in Lewis, Delaware. Uh, you can find out more about him and his firm at keyadvisorsgroupllc.com. That's advisors spelled with an O. And thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, giving us a very interesting outlook on what's going to happen, Eddie. Thank you. Thank you. 
And we'll be back after this break with our next guest. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Greg Melia. He is the owner and president at Melia Advisory Group. A financial firm based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you for having me. So let's just start with your background a little bit and what your firm does. Our firm focuses primarily on those that are approaching retirement or in retirement and uh, just helping them plan out all the planning requirements concerning Social Security, you know, how much income they need, how they're going to derive that income, um, you know, what is the amount of income they need, and then you know, and also taking into consideration future income needs as well with inflation and the loss of, uh, you know, loss of a spouse. So we have a very low interest rate environment. Uh, what are you telling your clients who want income, who don't want to take a lot of risk in what's going to remain a pretty low interest rate environment here? Yeah, I don't, I agree with you. I don't think we're going to see a big interest rate rise anytime soon. You know, it still is the world of who's less stinky right now. So the rates, our rates come up, we'll People start buying our debt and drive ours back down. So, you know, it's based upon those. We're still looking at with fixed income assets that, uh, for example, investment grade corporate bonds that are, you know, maturity dates eight to 10 years out uh, that are focused on. And again, my concern isn't about short term gains or losses in the bond. Mine is about driving the income for the clients. So, you know, my clients, we're, we're solely focused really intimately on the income. I, I teach in tell people across the country that if you have enough income and retirement to do everything you want, um, that's really the key issue. How much income do you have? Do you have enough to cover your bills? If you have, if you have a position where the income is coming in, if your account balance suffers, um, but you're still able to take the income as you can, for example, corporate bond, then, then the account balance is secondary for us. But, I mean, the income you're getting, even on corporate bonds, maybe, what, 3 or 4%, something like that today? Yeah, you're about, uh, about the 4% range. About 4%. So, I mean, that's not giving you a lot of income. I mean, if interest rates rise as well as people think it might, you're going to be losing some, some pretty substantial capital. But what do you recommend for people who, you know, 4% isn't enough, uh, and they're also worried about losing their capital? You, you've got other, you have other holdings too, but again, the capital concern is if you have to liquidate the assets. So, you know, if you have a million dollar account and they're needing forty to fifty thousand dollars in income from those assets and they have no intention of touching the principal, that's something in a complete different situation. 
Yeah. One of the other things you do a lot is planning on Social Security. Um, what is some of the advice you give as to when people should take it? I think a lot of people take it the first moment they're able to at age 62. Should they wait till full retirement age of 66 or 70? What, what are some of the calculations you go through with people on when they should take Social Security? Now, that's a loaded question for sure. Um, it all depends. There's so many scenarios that go into that. You know, first of all, you have to you have to look at their health. And the, you know, I had some gentleman in my office here a couple weeks ago that there hasn't been a family member live past 74 in like two generations. Well, he obviously should be taking it early. You know, there's no way the average for most people the, the taking it early versus waiting. The the loss occurs at about age 78 where you start going backwards. So there's a couple things you have to take in consideration when you're getting ready to retire with Social Security. One is uh, health needs, obviously, and, 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 and what your longevity look, picture looks like, what's your health picture. And then two is if you take the, you know, one of the things that's often left out by delaying and getting the 8% deferred credits on the Social Security, um, you know, it also later on when coal increases happen, you have a larger amount being impacted by coal, and that's a hard one to measure. So if you wait till 70, you know, you're, you're going to take your, you're going to get the 8% deferred credits for those years and take that by 132%. And by your of your base set at full retirement amount, and that's what your Social Security will be. But you take that times the COLA increases, and you'll find that that can have a dramatic impact on you know benefits 15 years now, especially for survivors. So just so I'm clear, you're saying if you start at 70, get the highest benefit by waiting and having it growing at 8 percent a year. When you're getting the cost of living increases, you're getting it on a higher base, and therefore you end up better than if you started taking it earlier. Is that what you're saying? Correct. That's one of the considerations. Another consideration you want to be mindful of is if you have a much younger spouse, you know, five to ten years, they're going to be living on a survivor benefit, especially if she's female, then you're definitely going to most likely want to prolong and not take it early. So do most of your clients do that? Do they take your advice and, and wait till 70 or so to take it? Well, it's, it's a mixed bag because the, the flip side of the coin is if you got somebody at 62 and they've got enough, you know, they've got enough savings where they can draw Social Security you know, if you take your Social Security and you're and you're not taking from savings that are generating, you know, the four to seven percent, which is where we're at with our assets, if we're generating the four to seven percent in income from other assets and they go and take Social Security, so they're saving that difference. You know, if they'd actually if they took that Social Security and saved it and then earned money with it, then the catch-up point is much much later. In fact, you probably will never catch up. So you have to look at each situation individually. Very good. Now, another thing you deal with is the so-called RMD, required minimum distribution. Are people aware of that, or what, what should people know about doing the required required minimum distribution and planning for it? There's, there's a lot that goes in that one as well. You, you know, at 70 and a half, you're required to take funds out, and then um, and the penalty for not doing this is 50%. So if you you skip, then you can you know if you need a, if your if your RMD is required is ten thousand dollars, then you could have a five thousand dollar penalty. So fifty percent of that would be penalized. So a lot of people aren't aware of that. You are given exception the first year. You can wait till April first the following year to take your RMD, um, but you must take. Then you have to take two that year. So one of the general recommendations is I I tell everybody take it in your first year. Don't wait till the second year. And if you're looking at your total assets in retirement plans. And then you take out roughly four percent of it each year. Is that the way it works? It starts at about three point. You, you, you take your first year to December thirty first balance and divide by twenty seven point four, 
and that's your that's the average life the average life expectancy they calculate. Now that's if you're married to somebody more than ten years, then you have a different chart. But for the person who's not married, which is general the general population, then you're going to take that December thirty first divided by twenty seven point four. And then you can take it out of us at any place. You don't have to take it out equally. If you have different IRAs or pensions or four hundred one ks, you can take it yeah. all the, from one, right? Yeah, you do have to be cautious though. So, for example, if you have all IRAs, you can you can take it from all from one or for all from you know take it just take it from one or from divide among the three if you have three. That's your call. Keep in mind though that your custodian who holds that IRA doesn't know if you're taking it from other sources, and they're not going to nag you for taking it. If you don't take it from them, they're going to assume you're taking it from somebody else. One of the caveats though to to remember is if you have 401k and you have got some IRAs. The 401k must have its own separate required minimum distribution. Hmm. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, the other area you deal with a lot is estate planning. Uh, what changes do you see coming uh, if tax reform gets through in the estate planning? Are they going to eliminate the estate tax altogether, or, or what do you expect to happen there? They kind of have already to a large degree. It's it's 5.5 million person or 11 million for couple now, and I think it. You know, in fact, I think COLA increased a little bit this year. Um, so for the average person, they've essentially removed. You know, you have to have you have to get over 11 million before you really start worrying about estate taxes. Our big concern is really making sure everybody's got their their dollars set up in such a fashion it passes on to the next generation the way they want it to. You know, we're all about conflict resolution, making sure that you know I. I think it's a sad fact when families get destroyed over dollars, and so we try to do what we can to, to eliminate that possibility. And so many people, I, I, you know, I've had people walk into my office that had in their 70s and poor health and have a net worth in the millions, yet have no estate planning. It's fairly common. And so, what do you do in a case like that, particularly to involve the family members so they're not surprised when the, the will is read and everybody knows what to expect? Well, it depends what it depends what they want to happen. You know, everybody's different. Typically, for most people, they just want to divide among the kids. You know, and, and some some have charitable contributions they want to do. But the main thing is getting it. You know, not having, for example, if you don't have a durable power of attorney. Now I can't speak to all the states. I mean, I know you know in Oklahoma, or a living will, for example. If you don't have a living will, according to Chuck Crane, our state attorney, he would tell you that it's doctor's prerogative. So if your wife or spouse ends up on a on a ventilator and they're brain dead and you want the machine turned off and, and you don't have it in the form of a living will, then it's doctor's prerogative. And it, that's the way it is in Oklahoma. I think it's familiar with most states, but I can't tell you that for sure. Mm-hmm. To have a durable power of attorney. And then in the your will, should you... Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, your living wills, your durable powers. And the other thing that's, you know, it's, it can be very expensive is you don't uh, you, you'll see this frequently. Somebody will have an account, husband and wife be married, for whatever reason, they, they put their account in their name. They don't have it listed as joint. It happens more often than you might think. And they don't realize that when there's a death of one of those spouses, that account's going to go through probate. And that judge will divide it among the, the surviving spouse and any children will get divided. Typically, that's what a probate judge is going to do. Meaning the spouse is going to get a lot less than they would have if it was not held jointly. Correct. She's not going to get that. You know, I know a case where it got, and the reason I know this, I had a case where the uh, one of my clients had a, a friend that the husband died and left the money. It was all in his name. So they had to probate three surviving kids, and it got divided among the three kids and the wife. And there was a lot of trouble getting that money back from the kids. Mm-hmm. So the better way to do it is to 
keep certain assets in one name and other assets in the other name, and then whenever the first one dies, the marital deduction okay. goes to the other yeah, one. Yeah, just make sure everything everything's held joint. You know, if you're married, if you can you can do other assets. You know, if you if you want to use a will, then just make sure you've got everything on total on death or payable on death on your uh, on all that you can, and then make sure you know there's other options. You can look at trust. Um, there's some other things you can look at doing as well. That will um, that can help in those situations. But you're you're saying that the the tax law change is not going to affect these things, kind of where assets go, I right? I don't really see it. I I was listening to your, to your gentleman your last call too, and and I do agree with him that I think we are we are facing a very significant uh, right now a drop in the market. The 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 price earning ratios you probably are familiar with this Jordan right now are back to what they were in 2000 2008 right before the last correction. What's kind of what's what's failed? What everybody's missing, in my opinion, today is that the the earnings on the S and P 500 for the last five quarters have gone straight. They've been negative all five. Yet price has gone up. And I ask people all the time, if you were to buy a company, you know, what's the first question you don't you'd ask the owner of that company? How much money do you make, right? And yep. he says, Well, I'm making a little. I'm making just a little bit of money, but I'm going to ask a big price for this company. Who's the buyer? Well, nobody in the right mind, but if you're in the market, you're a buyer right now. So people are saying that it's going up so much in anticipation of tax cuts, infrastructure spending, deregulation, all these wonderful things that are going to happen. So you think that's it's gone too far? Oh, I completely think it's gone too far. I, I think you have a deeper problem here, Jordan. I think you've got an issue. It has to do with a structural issue. I don't think Trump will be able to do a lot about it. I'm hoping I'm wrong, but I don't think it's going to occur. And it really, it's much, much deeper structural issue than Trump being able to change a few policies and make it go away. And it really has to do with the baby boomers. You've got 10,000 of them retiring a day hitting Social Security. And they've been, the baby boomers have been the engine of our economy for 35, 40 years. In 2007, they hit their peak. And you know as well as I, Jordan, when, they, when you have a, a generation that gets close to retirement, do you think they spend more or less? Probably less. Yeah, they're getting, I call it nesting for retirement. They're getting their house paid for. They're getting their cars paid for. Think of an entire generation, not just in the States. Japan's about 10 years ahead of us with their baby boomers. You have an entire uh, generation that you can go back historically and look. Anytime there's a population boom, you'll see that there's an economic boom about 40 years in the future. And and this is what we saw happen, and it's been their engine. That engine is now disappearing. It's, it, it, again, it's going away. So you can't, there's nothing that's going to make that change overnight. Time will, but nothing is going to make that happen. So you've got a generation. So the government's response to the, to the lack of spending that occurred was to artificially lower rates to induce people to borrow money to buy stuff. Well, guess what? It didn't work. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Greg Melia. Uh, he is a financial advisor, and he his firm is called Melia Advisory Group, uh, based in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, his website is MeliaAdvisoryGroup.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America. 
is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is um, Greg Melia. Uh, he is the president of Melia Advisory Group based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, their website, uh, MeliaAdvisoryGroup.com. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Thank you. So one thing we wanted to talk about was robo-advisors, which is a new trend in giving advice on financial uh, matters and allocating assets. Maybe just start with a description of what a robo-advisor is. And uh, why would one want to use one? Well, a robo-advisor really sound is what it sounds. It's you, you basically engage a, a computer program and say there's no live interface between you and another person. And basically you input, you, you do a risk factor test, and you'll, it'll spit out what mutual funds you need to be in, which consequently is what most advisors do today. Um, and so then there is no, there's no other advice, and, and so there's a real, there's been a real place where we're seeing the growth has been pretty strong, but I, I think it'll always be limited, um, but I do think there's a need for it, especially the upcoming generation, and, and what you're seeing happen in the financial world today is really, honestly, a lot of advisors really do something similar. They, they type in the information, the computer gives them the results. Do you right, use it yourself right. for your clients? No. No, we don't. We, in fact, we don't use mutual funds at all. We use all the individual assets. We we do the research. We do the work. We we don't farm it out. So, are people losing something by using a robo advisor instead of the old fashioned way? Well, if you're going to be just in the stock market, as you know, we talked. That's not us. We're we're in the fixed income world. We're looking at creating income for our clients to have a comfortable place to live on and and to be able to know that and the income increases in the future. So those that want to be in the stock market, you know, Warren Buffett said it best: being in, you know, being an S and P 500, it's it's hard to beat. I mean, if you want to be in the stock market historically, it's you know, beats beat most mutual funds out there. So, I think the difference lies, though, Jordan, is the fact that when somebody's getting retirement, there's a tremendous number of really advice and and setting up the, you know, how you receive your income, you know. What are you going to, how are you going to take this income? You know, that's the other thing we, we clearly, we talk a lot about, Jordan, is the fact that most advisors position the stock market having you selling assets to, to, to create the income for you to live on. And that is a very dangerous place to be because any kind of decrease in the market, you know, suddenly your retirement is day in danger. You're, you're going to suddenly have to stop and put everything on hold. So it's again. So there's a tremendous amount of advice, personal interaction that really needs to be done for somebody's getting ready to retire. You know, taxes is something that we look at heavily. We we do dummy tax returns on anybody getting ready to retire and show them what their taxes are. Understanding Social Security taxes is, is a huge deal. 
getting pre- getting prepared for RMDs. Um, how much income are you going to need? How much income are you going to need in the future? Prepping somebody for the loss of income due to inflation, prepping somebody for loss of income due to death when you lose a Social Security check when somebody dies. These are all very, very critical issues you're not going to get from a computer. And they are, so, they can't, they, go ahead, I'm sorry. A robo-advisor is not going to help you on the income side and how much to gener- how to generate income you need to live in retirement? No, it's more about just how are we going to allocate these assets. You give me a set amount of money, and then then, then it'll allocate into different mutual funds. So the other areas that that robos are being used, another one is insurance, for example. Do you think that uh, buying insurance online using a computer is a better way to go than using an individual agent? Well, the the example, and that's the, the example I like to give is, you know, often hear that robo advisors are going to take over the world. And no, I, it's just like life. It's in my opinion, it's just as similar as what happened years ago in the life insurance market. And they said that you know you don't need an advisor, you don't need an agent to sell. You can get online, you can buy cheaper, yada yada yada. And there was to some degree some success, like you'll see with the robot. But at the end of the day, people still want to talk to a human person. They still want to have look somebody in the eye and say, what, is, what, do, what do you think I should do? The other thing, Jordan, is that you'll see people will come in, and, and I had one lady, she, she put it best. I've repeated her statement many times. She said, Greg, I'm, I'm a smart cookie. I get my understudies at, at Yale, but this financial stuff is gobbledygook. And she just wants somebody to take care of it. You know, She didn't want to think about it, didn't want to deal with it. She just take care of this. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of people like that out there. So you think it's somewhat a generational thing that younger people will be more com- uh, comfortable with robo-advisors than older people? I do. I think that the younger generation that's used to more of the computer input, you know, is you're going to see a bigger acceptance of that. But I still think ultimately in the end, there will be a place for it. There's no doubt about that. But in the end, um, especially when looking at retirement, somebody's, if somebody's in their you know, younger years, dollar-cost averaging, I think it's fine. I, I'm not sure... You know, you're just going to dollar cost average in the market, try to build your nest egg up, and and you can do that very simply with ETFs and the S and P 500. You know, without really anybody's help. So, yeah. So you're saying it's going to have a, a role to play, uh, but I mean, as the younger generation, the millennials now, get older and are used to using robots and, and uh, robo advisors, uh, it be, it'll it'll gain more and more market share. Is what you're saying over time. Yeah, I think it will. I still think, I still think in the end, it, just like the term insurance market, you know, they it made so much inroads and then it just didn't grow much from there. I think the same thing will happen there. It's it's a new thing. Um, I honestly think the way advisors operate, they just kind of set themselves up for this because they they really just, you know, in mutual funds, there's no there's real no work in doing that. You're just check parking a box. So it's, you know, you're you're kind of asking for somebody to replace you because what are you offering if that's all you do? Yeah. That's now, there's been a big controversy lately about what's called the fiduciary rule coming out of the Labor Department, saying mm-hmm. that uh, people have to, advisors have to put their clients' interests in front of their own, and there was tremendous resistance to that by the financial industry. What, what do you think is going to happen with the fiduciary rule? I think it's ultimately delayed. I, I do see some issues with it. They made it sound simple. Now I have fiduciary responsibilities already, so it didn't really impact me much. But I also know that there there's a market served out there by, you know, somebody that could maybe, you know, could use different types of products that are, that's going to be, they're going to be excluded from those products. They're not going to be offered to them anymore because the, the liability risk is so high now with that. 
with it passing the rule in the law that they'll just withdraw from the market. Companies are changing their entire plan portfolios and changing everything. And the smaller guys that really could have been helped, um, I think ultimately are going to get hurt by it. So I, I'm not a big fan of it, even though I, I think it could have done, been done better, I guess what I'm saying. And I'm one that has fiduciary responsibility, so it has zero impact on me. So you're saying, though, that for the people who are currently under the suitability rule instead of the fiduciary rule, that they're going to have a liability to do something in the client's interest, and as a result of that, they're not going to want to deal with younger uh, younger and uh, people with smaller assets because it's not worth it to take on the liability. And therefore, they're yeah. going to kind of withdraw from that market. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you're, you're starting to see that happen now, that it's just not worth Because they've, they've opened the door for class action lawsuits. What is suitability? What is, you know, what is fiduciary responsibility? What is... I mean, there is so much that goes. It's always the unintended consequences you don't know until afterwards, right? And and that's what I think is going to happen ultimately. It's going to be. It's already been expensive to implement, and um, it's going to preclude some of the younger or some of the people less assets able to get the help that they might have gotten otherwise. Yeah, very good. Well, in about two minutes we have left. Why don't you kind of sum up your current outlook for the market and what people should be doing to plan for retirement and, and produce income in a in a rising interest rate environment you discussed. I would definitely, you know, you, you've got you've got other options besides the corporate bonds. You've got REITs, you have preferred, you, you know, you've got some, you know, there's some different other options beyond that that would take longer we have today. But, you know, you really want to be looking at securing that income stream. It's more about income than it is the account balance. Uh, I teach this that, you know, if, if you, it's kind of, kind of like if you have a million-dollar account and the most you can take out, if you offer somebody a million-dollar account and the most they can take out is, is twenty grand a year, or you offer them a half a million dollar account, but they can take thirty thousand out of that account. Which account do they pick? Yeah. You know, it's always about how much income can I take out and not run out. So it doesn't sound doesn't make sense, but the right the right answer is to pick the half a million dollar account. And people today, advisors are really stuck on the uh, I call the performance model, which says we just got to grow this account balance and. What I want to show my clients, if they don't need the income, we want to grow. If they don't need the income coming up the assets, we'll plug that income and buy more assets and grow the income for the next year. I want to see consistent, steady income increases for my clients. The account balance to me is, is secondary as long as the income is fixed and if the account drops. Otherwise, when the account drops and you're selling assets, you, you really need to stop, put everything on hold and not do it. Mm-hmm. What happened with me 10 years ago, I had a client, somebody come to my office with a balling advisor said, sell 4 or 5% of the assets, don't worry about the market, you'll be fine the rest of your lifetime. The rest of your lifetime is 12 years later, and she's bankrupt, balling in my office because she's, she has no more dollars. Uh-huh. They, they took enough income, but they ran through the principal, as you're saying, in a case like kept that. On selling, kept on selling through the down market, you know, and it just it just absolutely ripped her principal apart. and. You got to be. That's the reason they keep lowering. You know, with all the high volatility we've had, it used to be that you've heard the four percent rule, right? Yeah. Well, well, now they back that down to three, and some are arguing for two. Well, yeah. that's why I say when you have a corporate bond and you have other assets that pay that, you know, around four to six percent, and you can take that income and not worry about the principal. I'd much rather be there in retirement than worrying about what the price of stock is today and tomorrow, especially with where we're at. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour, this half hour has been Greg Melia. Uh, he is the owner and president at Melia Advisory Group based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can find out more about him at his website, which is MeliaAdvisoryGroup.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Greg. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much, and we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. 
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.